What's up, everybody? Welcome to your weekly installment of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast. It is I, your host, and the Nuclear Barbarian, Emmett Penny. And I'm here with, I think, my favorite energy writer, easily top three, Robert Bryce, the host of the Power Hungry podcast, author of, what is it, eight books? Six. Six. Okay. And you wrote and I think directed The Juice, correct? I'm the executive producer. My colleague Tyson Culver directed it and did a great job. Yeah, and you did a great job in it. And of course, your most recent book is A Question of Power, which I love. I read it at the end of last year. Very much enjoyed it. So everybody should go check out Robert's stuff, buy that book, listen to the podcast. You know the deal. All that will be in the show notes. But today, Robert is here to join me in our mutual contempt for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission um, and some of their recent behavior. So why don't you set the table for us, Robert? What's been going on? Well, look, I mean, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is, right now it has three members. There's still two open seats. The Biden administration has been in office now for 15 months, and they still haven't appointed two of the members for the five-member commission. So to me, on its face, that indicates that they're just not serious about nuclear. But then you have then, back up even before that, who's one of the top climate advisors in the Biden administration? Gina McCarthy. What was her previous job? Natural Resources Defense Council. What is the Natural Resources Defense Council about? Anti-nuclear. They cheered on and pushed for the closure of the Indian Point Energy Center in New York, which in my view was one of the, without doubt, one of the most important pieces of infrastructure in the entire state of New York and particularly for the city of New York and they've closed Mm -hmm. it uh, Mm -hmm. prematurely. Okay. so background, but I could go on on that because I just, mm-hmm. it's still as even as I say it, 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 I get irritated again. But what's happened just this in the last two months? Well, in early January, the natural, the nuclear regulatory commission poured out the application that was put forward by Oklo power, which is a, a Silicon Valley based startup. They had a 1.5 megawatt reactor, uh, fast reactor that they were developing and want to commercialize. And their license was just tossed out by the NRC without warning, without any, they didn't even warn Oklo that they were going to do this. They just poured them out. Now on a technicality, it appears to me. Okay. And, and there's timing here matters a lot, Emmett. And the, this happened just a few days after the Chinese began operating a high temperature helium cooled gas reactor in Mm -hmm. Shandong province, producing commercial power from a 200 megawatt gas cooled reactor. This is cutting edge nuclear technology for any country in the world. And the Chinese are beginning to produce commercial power. And here the NRC won't even let a startup even proceed in their application process. They just toss them out. And then what happened last week? And this is the part that just flat, as my late brother John Bryce used to say, just grills my cheese. Mm-hmm. That the NRC again takes an action that is inexplicable. And that two years after, in one case and three years after in another, they, they rescind the license extensions that were given to two nuclear plants, the Turkey Point reactor, uh, the Turkey Point plant in Florida, which is owned by Florida Power and Light, a subsidiary, subsidiary of NextEra Energy. And they did the same with Peach Bottom in Pennsylvania, which is owned by Constellation. So this is just, you know, oh, and, and why did they do it? They got a petition from a fringe anti-nuclear group founded by, of all people, hold, wait for it, Helen Caldicott, who's, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, I will say a quack. When it yeah, comes to the issue of, issue of radiation. Yeah, yeah, for people who don't know, Helen Caldicott is an Australian doctor, I believe. That's right. Who um, maybe she was famous before this, but I saw a rise into the public eye even before I was into nuclear in the aftermath of Fukushima. 
and she peddled some of the most grandiose, apocalyptic, nightmarish claims, totally scientifically unfounded, uh, about the radiation hazards there. But to this day, no one has suffered from radiation poisoning as a result of what happened at Fukushima. No deaths or injuries can be attributed to that at all. And yet, here she is in an NGO that just asks, I guess, very politely for the NRC to rescind this. And they say, yeah, sure. Happy to go back on our word and create uncertainty in an already jeopardized industry. I mean, you can't even make it up. And and I think that that's the key issue here, Emmett. It's not only is the timing important, right, that they rescind these license extensions, which were lawfully granted. And and, and then, then here comes beyond nuclear saying, oh, well, you didn't do a proper, it was a generic environmental impact statement. Well, okay, but now you're, is this a banana republic or not? I thought, well, you know, one of the things that I take enormous pride in the United States is, is that we are a nation of laws and that you you have a you have an agreement you have a legal settlement and that that's the deal right everybody yeah. agrees to play by the rules and yet in this case it's like oh no we we're just joking because now there's a change of administration and suddenly the laws aren't the laws we're mm-hmm. going to change them because we have now two democrats and one republican and you saw commissioner Wright and the the republican dissented and he called this is arbitrary and and this is an arbitrary and he didn't use the word capricious but that's what but that's what it is yeah the, it's absolutely capricious i mean it's impossible to read it as anything else i mean the thing about these environmental impact statements is clearing the threshold for them is incredibly high their cost benefit analysis doesn't value energy itself right from what i can tell because if it did and they were we subjected wind and solar to the same regime, it would never be built in this country. Right. Because it just wouldn't clear the threshold for usefulness. So, you know, in the middle of all this, we have auctioned off four four plus billion dollars of federal lands to privateers in New York for offshore wind. And which, which is among the most costly ways of generating. I mean, I think it's only hugely costly and it takes a lot of land. I mean, that was land that was federally protected by FDR. So right. to me, there's a huge betrayal of a certain democratic legacy happening here. Uh, I, li- I like that. But, but it's also just this idea. OK, well, in, in terms of what, you know, this idea of levelized cost of electricity, which is a very fault, you know, very fraught and, and inaccurate way to talk about the price of, of what electricity is worth. Offshore wind, it's second only to actually burning American currency in terms of cost. I mean, (laughs) there is absolutely no more expensive way of producing electrons than offshore wind. And what is happening now, you talk about what's going on. Well, under the Biden administration, they, they offer a lease right on top of the remaining right whale, North Atlantic right whale habitat on the Mm -hmm. just smack on the dot on top of it. And the Sierra Club and all the rest of these activist groups, I'm not calling them environmental groups. All these activist groups are just like crickets. Oh yeah, well, you know, never mind, right whales. We love wind turbines more. I wrote that story already. I wrote that article a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. But one more point on, since I'm on, on the rage yeah, here. go for it, man. I just got the rage button going. <laughs> But for the NRC to to pour out, or to pull back these license extensions, on, effectively on the almost the same day that Russia invaded Ukraine, mm-hmm. and in in an, and and under an administration that has said climate change is one of their top priorities, I mean, who are these people? I mean, what do they do? I mean, is there any strategy 
at all in any of their thinking about the energy business. It appears to me there is not any at all. There is no strategic sense of energy as the most important commodity in our economy. There's mm -hmm. no idea of what the, the, the lag times, the, 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 the idea of substitutability and the limited substitutability. I mean, it just, it boggles my mind. And I just, it, it leaves me frankly enraged because it's so irresponsible and, and there is no accountability. And, and, and the mainstream media just will not cover it. They just don't. And, and I find it offensive in the extreme. I feel like there's a really cruel awakening happening because when I take a look at everything that's happening in the energy world, not just with the NRC and nuclear, I mean, they've been a nightmare for a really long time. They And part of that is, frankly, the Atomic Energy Commission's fault and the utility industry's fault. It is hard to outdo the level of condescension, arrogance, and entitlement that organization, the Atomic Energy Commission, and that industry, the uh, investor-owned utility industry in America, had in the 50s and 60s over nuclear. Outright, outright lying to the public, embracing linear no threshold because they figured accidents weren't going to happen anyway, so it doesn't matter how you measure it you measure radiation exposure. So there's a lot of like long-term trends that are now coming to a head here. So that aside, when I'm looking at raising food prices because energy prices are going up, you know, all this stuff together, next year is going to be full of turmoil all over the world. And it's going to be really hard on working American families. We're a baseline, insanely wealthy country. So I doubt that there's going to be like deposed ruler level sure. <laughs> uh, issues, right. but we can look for a much more complicated world uh, unfolding in front of us. And that is very worrying because it doesn't feel like there's any coherent hand on the rudder. No, no, no coherence whatsoever, Emmett. And one of the things that, you know, I've for now at more than a dozen years, I've been promoting natural gas to nuclear. This is the way forward. If we're serious about decarbonization, mm -hmm. if we're serious about a small footprints, and this is one of the my main gripes, and it will remain one of my main gripes against the wind energy business. I'm a bird watcher and have been for 30 years. These turbines kill birds. They also kill bats. Mm -hmm. And this is part of our wildlife that we own together in common. Mm -hmm. But back to the natural gas part of this, the the other part of what's clear in the wake of this you know, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and you can and we can talk about whether it makes any sense geopolitically why Putin is doing it. But it's going to have a huge impact on food prices and on yeah. fertilizer availability for farmers all over the world. Russia mm -hmm. was a big fertilizer exporter. Ukraine was one of the biggest suppliers of wheat in the world, particularly into the Middle East. So the the instability in commodities across the board is enormous. And who is going to pay who's going to bear the brunt of this? It's the poor and the middle class. Mm -hmm. And I've just I've just wrote a piece. I've sent it to the LA Times. I don't know if they'll, they'll run it, but you know, you live in California. Look at the, the in last year alone, elect, residential electricity prices in California went up almost 12% in one mm -hmm. year. The all mm -hmm. sector price went up almost 10%. And this is just a just a soup song, a, a appetizer for the massive price increases that are coming because again, of short-sighted, I would say, irresponsible energy policy that says, oh, mm -hmm. we're going to do it all with wind and solar. They're going to have to spend, the, according to the PUC and, the, and CAISO, they're teeing up $80 billion in new spending. That's what they're estimating now. 
Well, mm -hmm. look at the bullet train in California. It's supposed to cost $42 billion, latest estimate $105 billion. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's going to be ruinously regressive on the poor and the middle class in California in a state that, that brands itself as progressive. And again, you're just getting me all ticked off here. I know, I know. Well, that's why I brought you on to do this to you, because I'm about to, I'm about to poke the bear again by saying uh, your state, Texas, isn't faring much better. I mean, you guys have a ton in the ERCOT pipeline. You wrote a piece about that, too. Yeah. Well, first, you know, these apologists, and there were a bunch of them after mm -hmm. the the blackouts hit last year saying, oh, don't don't blame renewables. Oh, you know, those crazy Texas politicians, you know, saying this is the fault of renewals. It's all a historical. Mm -hmm. What happened in the years before the blackouts? $66 billion spent on wind and solar. According to the wind and solar industry's own numbers, mm -hmm. never been, no one has ever challenged my numbers on this. And all, all of that spending was effectively worth nothing at 2 a.m. Mm -hmm. on February 15th when the grid was on the verge of collapse. Mm -hmm. And so now where are we? Well, I, I wrote another piece about the Texas section of the American Society of Civil Engineers. They released a report uh, last month pointing out that what, what is weakening the grid in Texas? Well, bad market design, that's clearly part of it, but excessive subsidies for wind and solar. And yeah. here's the punchline. Those federal subsidies, the production tax credit and the investment tax credit are leading to a situation where by the end of next year, Texas could have more wind and solar connected to the ERCOT grid than they have natural gas fired capacity. We're, we're, we're recreating the California mistake in Texas. Yep. Yeah. So just for people who don't totally know, like what, what are, what's the difference between these two subsidies? We've got the pr production and the investment subsidy. So how do those work? So the production tax credit is based on how many watt hours a given facility produces. So for wind, it has been depending on what, you know, the, the level of subsidy, but it's generally been between 22 cents or $22 and $25 per megawatt hour. And under the Build Back Better Act, they, you know, the wind lobby was pushing for a $25 a megawatt subsidy for five years. Now, thanks to Joe Manchin. <laughs> yeah, right. Thanks to Joe Manchin, that was killed. Mm -hmm. The investment tax credit, it's a certain percentage. I think it's something like 30%. I've forgotten off the top of my head. But it's it, you put in, say, $1,000 or a million dollars, you get 30% of that investment right back from the in the form of a tax credit from the federal government. So that explains why so much solar is being built now because the the investment tax credit is so lucrative to me when i look at this i'm seeing a level of i don't expect institutions to be perfect i don't expect either the government or the market to be perfect but what i am seeing is a level of recklessness and institutional decadence and i mean that not in a like the typical knee-jerk pejorative sense, but really a falling away from what we have considered to be a tradition of governance in America. And fecklessness, yeah, irresponsibility, and irresponsibility, yeah. I mean, I don't even understand how to hold anybody to account for this. I mean. And it's clear that they want to weasel out of it, right? Because in ERCOT, in your state, they're, they just lost their bid for legal immunity. Yeah. And this is a big issue. The mm -hmm. sovereign it's a immunity, huge issue. The sovereign immunity question is one that, okay, so 
I've done, I've, I've written in Forbes and I've done, I may over overstated what the potential losses are just because of the mispricing in the market, right? So depending on whose numbers you believe, the, the way the market was structured and, the, and because of the way the regulators acted, there could have been overcharges of something like $26 billion. That was what I put in my most recent Forbes piece. Well, maybe it's half that or maybe a little less. So, okay, that's 10 billion. But you're already seeing like Rayburn Country Electric Cooperative has securitized already $900 million of the debt that they're owed yeah. to ERCOT. Okay, so that's going to be tacked onto ratepayer bills. Brazos Electric Cooperative, one of the oldest in the, and biggest in the, in the state of Texas, they are in bankruptcy court claiming that ERCOT, they, they shouldn't be responsible to pay ERCOT $1.9 billion. So mm -hmm. there's nearly $3 billion right there that may have to be securitized. But then there's the other part of this, which is ERCOT as an RTO, and what is, what is it? Is it a state entity? Yeah. Well, the Dallas Court of Appeals just recently said, no, it's not a state entity, and it doesn't deserve sovereign immunity. So that means all these personal injury lawsuits and all the property and casualty lawsuits, where there are 131 insurers who have sued ERCOT now, that potentially ERCOT could be on the hook for these legal judgments or insurance judgments against them as an RTO, well, ERCOT doesn't have any money. They're just a they're just a clearinghouse. So who, if they are held responsible and they don't have sovereign immunity, there's yet another hit the ratepayers are going to take on top of the the sub the securitization of the of the of the past debts and the higher cost of gas and all these other inflationary aspects that are already being coming down the 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 the, the ratepayer pike that are going to just slam consumers because of a badly designed market that is not able to control these federal subsidies that are distorting the market. That I mean, it's just a mess, right? Like, I'm trying to figure out what the vision for energy is in America, and I don't see one basically anywhere I look. And I mean, I, I can only find it as depressing. It feels like, for all of its faults, in the era of the investor-owned utility, that was also an era of incredible manufacturing power in America. There was a basic sense of the importance of energy. I'll give you an example. My mother grew up in Detroit. Part of her eighth grade science unit was the internal combustion engine. Wow. Right? So just the basics of how that worked, you know, because you'd have kids that were going to leave and go to trade school. Right. And then into the factories. And then in the factories. And then, in, you know, they could work their way up into management or whatever. They didn't have to have a degree. And that was a sort of back pocket walking around sense that existed. And I think we're very far from that right now. And getting further. Yeah, and getting further. So as somebody who's been in the game of communicating these issues to the public for a really long time, like, what do you think it our duty is as people who want to represent these ideas correctly. And what do you think is the most effective way to do that? Well, I, I think the challenge, and it's one that I still work at, but mm -hmm. you have to know your numbers and you have to know your units. And therein lies the, one of the key challenges is that our, our, our science curricula in our schools is just not designed as doesn't teach energy well, it doesn't mm. just doesn't, 
it, it doesn't even it teach the most basic things in terms of energy and power. They're not the same things. Energy is the ability to do work, power is the rate at which work gets done. Mm -hmm. We only use energy to convert it into power, whether it's mm -hmm. lighting power, my, you know, amplification power, or cooking power, motive power, you know, we use power in different ways, but we, to make, get power, we have to make energy flow. Well, these are basic concepts, but for people to really be energy literate, they need to understand how to convert the, you know, imperial units to joules, the horsepower into, into watts, mm -hmm. all these things that are basic facts, because that's part of the key here is that who are the policymakers? Who are the lawmakers? Well, they're all lawyers. Well, why are they lawyers? Because they couldn't do the math to get into engineering school. <laughs> I mean, that's just the truth. So they get, you know, they hear some, you know, some carpet bagger, some climate change carpet bagger saying, oh, well, we got to save climate. Well, we need this, that, and the other. And the liars say, oh, yeah, well, that sounds good to me. Oh, I'm going to do mm -hmm. that. Well, what about, but it's also, so it's a, it's a level of scientific incompetence mm -hmm. among the policymakers. But it's something else I've been thinking about quite a lot, Emmett, and I think this might rhyme with how you're seeing it as well, is that it's a failure to understand the grid as a complex network. Mm. And it was a guy named Martin Minchev at, at uh, Howard Payne University here in Brownwood, Texas. He, he and I were corresponding. And that was his point to me. And I thought, I'll do credit to him because he made me think about that in a different way. That there's mm. a lack of understanding of the grid as, a, as our most complex, biggest and most important energy network. And unless you understand it as a network that has to be all, or as Meredith Angwin rightly says, calls it an orchestra, that it has to work together all the time. And you, mm -hmm. un and by gradually undermining it with all of this asynchronous generation, weather dependent renewables, it's all been done with no kind of understanding or appreciation of the complexity and the importance of the system as a system. And mm -hmm. I think that that, I don't think I'm getting esoteric here. I'm just trying to put my finger right on what is the fundamental misunderstanding that we're dealing with. And I think that that's one of them. I think that's true too. I think there's an epistemic problem. And I think that it exists with a really difficult political problem that no one quite knows how to solve. And that's the problem of the green NGO. And not just that, the NGO in general has now become a way to circumvent what should be the basic political operations of America's Republican democracy. Mm -hmm. Go, keep going on that because I like where you're going with that because what I see very similar thing that they mm -hmm. have the media, the money and the momentum and, and there's no check on their power. And, right. the, and the more, the, so, the so that's part of it, more money. Right. So that's part of it. So if we want to take a look at like, any democratic system is going to be informational in its bedrock because cases have to be made. This is a problem as old as Athenian democracy, the first we know of. Who has access to the commanding heights of that information and how it gets disseminated is, has also always been a problem since then. One of the difficulties with the NGO space is that it operates in a way that is so opaque that we're not really sure what the relationships are between these big money groups that fund political campaigns, that do organizing efforts, that do all of this work 
that civil society organizations that were membership societies used to do in the earlier part of the 20th century, which were thicker communal ties to the community. Instead, these are membership organizations that take money from donors. So their relationship to the media and the media class is, I think, very much obscured from public view and creates this level of epistemic dissonance, especially when it comes to issues like energy in the public sphere. So that means that the realm in which we're having our conversations about what we think we know about energy is so distorted and inaccurate that we're confusing a bad map for what is precious terrain. You stated it very well. I'll, I'll add, I'll add one thing, which is that I've thought about this quite a lot as well lately. Mm -hmm. And you know, just trying to stack up the comparison of the dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Because the the go to strategy, and I've seen this myself, and I've seen it used against me, so I'm very familiar with it. Mm -hmm. Is oh well, that guy, you just working for the fossil fuel business. You know, can't trust yeah. anything. When in reality, the NGOs, the anti hydrocarbon, anti nuclear crowd has outspends the fossil fuel business and hydrocarbon business by factors of two, three, four, five, six. I mean, it's not even close, mm -hmm. but here's the, but here's the part that I, that, so that's a quick aside, but what's the fundamental difference between the, the, the producers, the ones that have to produce molecules and electrons? Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, that's a hard business because you've got to have a network of a system of systems and people that know what they're doing, engineers, people that know how to, you know, handle a wrench, drive a truck, all these other things to deliver electrons and molecules to the consumers, to the economy and the, you know, that we can keep the energy flowing and the economy can be powered. But what about these NGOs? They don't have to produce a goddamn thing. All yeah. they have to do is, is, is to justify the campaign. All they have to do is tell the, the the donor, see, our campaign was successful. So they're not producing. They don't have to make anything work. All they have to do is justify their own existence. So it's a kind of asymmetric warfare that we're fighting against. And I consider myself fighting against this misinformation that's being promulgated by these NGOs who are, as you point out, unaccountable, uninformed, and they don't have to produce anything. And so it, it's undermining the very fabric of our most important networks. And it's extraordinarily dangerous. And it's incredibly bad for the poor and the middle class because they, among all of them, have, have no voice in any of this. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'd like but, to stop. Does that, does that rhyme? Does that make no, sense? No, I, I think that's right. And I think we should add another way in which this has changed. I think about this in terms of the type of, let's say, if we wanted to be very highfalutin, the discursive environment is brought about by different technology. In other words, what technology does to media and our relationship to ourselves, each other, and the information we receive. If we look at the post-war era, if we just look at the beginning of modernism or modernity, not modernity, that goes back way farther, but sort of the end of the 19th century to let's say about the six, 1960s, I or 70s, I'll say. That is largely, as I understand it, the era of the transistor. And yeah. so it's a lot about amplifying, right? So we can think of Elvis here, right? Playing yeah. through an amplifier, right? Rock and roll, right? Broadcasting all of this, sending the, a big signal out to a the, lot of people. The Fender and this, amplifier, yeah. Right, exactly. And this jives with all sorts of other technology of the era, like the megaphone, a lot of the art that happens around there that's interested in mass psychology and how these things happen. 
And then around the 70s, when Silicon Valley starts to mature and to become civilianized, we enter, I think, the era of the semiconductor. And that is a different discursive environment because it starts to become incredibly digital. And the digital social sphere is now very, it's a dominant part of our lives that we don't understand very well because its changes are less obvious than that of the era of the transistor, which could be seen as an exaggeration of the social life that preceded it. This is, I think, a deeper alteration. What do I mean by that? When we're on social media, when we're doing all of these things, as those of us in the the typing and emailing class (laughs) do, there's a funny thing that happens when we're dealing with these avatars of ourselves and they start to bleed into our everyday lives. And now who we are in this digital social sphere becomes a very disconnected social experience that ends up being more meaningful than we think it is. In other words, when we look at climate activism, when we look at all of these things that these big money groups dump into, what they are doing is helping contour and form people's identities around specific causes, which is deeper, a deeper problem than old school political faction problems which everyone who's ever lived in a political community has had to deal with. That's part of why I think so many problems which are technical and might have political constituencies, energy would be one of them, are now cultural problems that have to do with the alleged moral worth of different people in our society, which is why people can get away with saying, Robert Bryce is just a shell for fossil fuels. You don't have to pay attention to any of the information he's saying, because that is how the signaling of the self and the community works in the age of the semiconductor. Because the tribe, it's, you don't, I thought about this because Obama talked at the, at the Glasgow conference, right? In, Mm -hmm. In COP26. And his, there were no numbers in his presentation, right? It was all about, oh, you're being activists around climate. That's really good. Just be an activist, you know, which, well, okay, but well, what's the outcome? What are you actually trying to do? Mm-hmm. And that the identification, the self-identification and tribalism around, well, I'm, I'm a climate activist, I'm a climate hawk, and that just by that self-branding that that's enough. And what I've really tried to do in my work is, okay, well, Okay, yes, climate is a concern, but it's not our only concern. Mm -hmm. And if this is our concern, what are we going to do? It's not enough to just say, I hate Exxon or I hate Chevron or you you name it. Well, what are you going to do? How are you going to keep the economy working? That's the question. And it's one that they don't have to answer because all these groups, these NGOs, they only have to justify their campaign. They don't Mm -hmm. have to actually make any of the trains run on time. Mm -hmm. And so that that accentuates this, you know, this, this factionalism, but you use that word discursive environment. What does that mean? Yeah. So that just means like the realm in which we hash these things out. Right. So I said, sort of uh, self-consciously like a highfalutin way to say that, you know, we could call it the public sphere, but we also can't really call it that anymore because it's not public, right? Like Facebook isn't public. I mean, what you do there is like in public, but it's yeah. not public in the sense of res publica, public things. 
that we look at. And I use the term environment because it happens across media and in many different platforms. So you can't just say in the press because it's unclear what that really means now. And and in an age of Substack, what is that anymore? Exactly, exactly. And there's this atomization of, of the media now that I see as both good and quite dangerous. And I think about it a lot myself because I'm on Twitter, you know, and I think, well, I don't have a blue check and I've tried to get the blue check now four <laughs> times. And they said, no, you can't have the blue check. Yeah, you like, can't get your respectability I, card. I hate your fucking blue check. And I hate that I fucking want the blue check. Right. Yeah, you know, yeah. but this is the little, you know, the little self gratification. I like, oh, I got someone retweeted my thing. But I've also had to step back and think, well, no, my work is important just because it's my work and because I'm trying to bring a humanist approach to the issues of energy and power and that I will stake myself and my reputation on that thing every day of the week, 900 times a month, because this matters so much. Mm-hmm. And yet there is so little attention to it. And, and it's such a casual kind of, oh, well, we're just going to change over all of our systems to solar and wind. Well. Oh, okay, right. Well, where are you going to get your neodymium? Oh, I don't want to talk about that. Yeah. You know, right. Instead, it's just like, well, oh, you, it's okay that you're going to outsource all of our supply chains to China and that you're okay. How much slave labor is it okay for you to have in your solar panels? I mean, is it just 5%? I mean, is it 1%? I mean, mm-hmm. how much slave labor is okay for you? And yeah, and I, and I do a lot of public speaking and I put that out in front of audiences and I just, I say it that plain. And mm-hmm. Yet that's glossed over. It's like, oh yeah, the State Department sanctions imports of polysilicon from Uyghur-controlled Xinjiang, or the the Uyghur slave labor in Xinjiang. It was a news story for two days, and it's not mentioned again. Well, yeah. I'm mentioning it as often as I can. No, yeah. well, I would say this too, right? There was that it was a long road that was supposed to connect with the copper mines in Alaska, right? And as you and I both know, copper is an essential part for both wind turbines, especially wind turbines and solar panels. And EVs. And EVs. And now that whole process, which was approved under the Trump administration, is getting the good old NRC treatment (laughs) of being arbitrarily rescinded. Right. So then the question that I think geopolitically is, how dependent do you want America to be? It would be one thing if they were saying, we're going to expand our mining operations to make America self-sufficient in its production of these resources. I still think it wouldn't be worth it because I don't think that just in a dollars and cents way, wind and solar add up, but I could respect that position as a coherent national industrial strategy. Right. And there is no national industrial policy. There's no sense of that as a, I mean, you look at these EV companies and you look at their supply chains and you think, well, there is really no other source of neodymium and for neodymium iron boron magnets, which are the the high strength magnets in permanent magnets used in, in nearly every electric vehicle. And I've just done the calculations based on the numbers that Richard Harrington did at the Natural History Museum in London. And I've been presenting it in my in my talks, but it's uh, to electrify half of the U.S. auto fleet. Right? So there's something like 280 million motor vehicles in America. What would you need in rough terms to electrify half of motor vehicles in the U.S. by 2050? You'd need two times global copper production, three times global lithium, four times global lith- neodymium, and nine times global copper or global cobalt production. I mean, these are these are fantastical numbers, and that's not that's global production. Yeah, global production just to electrify half of the U.S. fleet. 
-hmm. And yet, you know, what is, you know, Kamala Harris in December, you know, I'm out here with my EV. Isn't this great? I love it. Mm -hmm. Oh, Pete Buttigieg was saying the same thing. You know, Jen Psaki was asked, are you going to drill more? She was like, no, we're going to do other things. They asked Pete Buttigieg, he said, we're going to do EV. And then people are like, we just have to wait for light batteries. Like they're insanely dangerous and so heavy. They destroy our roads right now. Roads, which will only ever be made with fossil fuels, by the way. But that's just, we'll just have to wait until we get light batteries, which is of course a fiction. That will also never happen because it's mineral, but it's going to be heavy. <laughs> like, that's just the way it works, man. Batteries stink. They still stink. You know, I yeah. mean, they're better than they were in Edison's day. But what are we still using? Lead acid by the by the billion of mm-hmm. lead, lead acid batteries in our starter motors for our starter motors in our in our vehicles. And in this idea, again, I think it goes back to this idea that we talked about before. The system is a system. And mm-hmm. I talk about the electric grid, which we can talk about as well. I know we're running out of time, but. I think the grid that the electric grid we have is the electric grid we're going to have because the idea that we're going to, Oh, we're going to build all those renewables and we're going to connect them with all the high voltage transmission. The hell you are. Mm -hmm. There's no way to build the amount of high voltage transmission Mm -hmm. that any of these all renewable schemes demand. And yet it's just glossed over. Well, we'll just, we'll, you know, a bunch of hand waving and we'll just put it out there, you know, in, in flyover country. Well, have you been to flyover country? Cause I have, and those people out there don't want your bullshit. No, they don't want your bullshit and they want the power to turn on when they flip the switch. I mean, I've lived out there, you know, I think, I think that's a huge divide too. Maybe one that we'll save for later because there is a big town and country divide on what to do with land, which you and I both have a lot to say about. So we'll save it for another time because I'm always looking for an excuse to get you back on the show. And thank you for spending time with us. This was a always, great, always, great fun. Always happy to, happy to do it, Emmett. You know, I'm a fan. And uh, this industrial cathedrals idea that you came up with, I'm, I'm, I steal that left and right. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate it. All right, everybody, check out Robert's stuff. Remember, stay strong, stay sharp, and stay radiant. We will see you next time. 